great to have Elizabeth and Daryl back from their vacation, and we appreciate Kelly filling in the last couple weeks on the piano, but uh, it's great to have Elizabeth back on the piano this morning. So we want to give our brother the full time till quarter till when we have to shift over to, uh, to uh, shift for the morning service at 11. So Brother Reed, you come on, share what the Lord's laid on your heart. chapter 8, that's where we're going to be at this morning, Luke 8, and then fellas, if I need to do anything with this, sometimes I'm really bad with these uh, microphones, so let me know if I did something, uh, we're good to go? Okay, I'm not on. Well, I'll let pastor, uh, while, while pastor's helping me mess with this thing, I'll give you a, a brief introduction, uh, so as, he, as Pastor mentioned, uh, my wife is not here with me, which is a, a tragedy. I wish she could be, uh, but we, uh, are, we're, we're based out of a church in Wisconsin, just north side, thank you very much, north side of Milwaukee, and uh, I, we have two children, a uh, little boy and a little girl, so Gilbert is our little boy and Ginger is our little girl, and uh, they are, um, they're, they're something else. I, I, There's pistols and spitfires and all that kind of stuff. Um, when the Lord gave us Gilbert, I was so excited about it. And then when I found out we were having a girl, I told my wife, I said, I do not want a wallflower. Let's ask the Lord for just a, a, a firecracker. And she says, you're the one asking for this. And I said, well, I, I really would like to have, a, have a, just a girl. Who's, well, the Lord gave us a little redhead and we named her Ginger for the spice. And so that's what we have. Uh, it's, she is something else. But anyways, uh, my wife is expecting with our third thirdborn, and so he is due within the, any time in the next couple of weeks. Uh, my wife has a, has a track record of going early, and so we're, we're praying that the, that, that the baby's not born this week. But I told Walter, if the baby's born this week, I'm out, and you're filling in, so he'll take care of that. Uh, Walter and I went to college together. We, we overlapped for a time, and then I was uh, the men's dorm supervisor and, and during the time that uh, Walter was there, and the Lord just uh, knit us together in a special relationship. And he had mentioned to me when he, when he finished school, he said, hey, if you ever need a music guy, I'd love to, to go with you. And uh, uh, because of the way this, this part of our tour had uh, worked out and with the pregnancy and all, uh, this week I had to fly. And so contacted Walter, felt very impressed with the Lord to do that. And so he's going to be here with me this week and a time of uh, mentoring, iron sharpening iron, and just spending time uh, together. And he's helping with the music, so I'm very, very grateful for that. Uh, Walter is from Alabama. Uh, and so if you have like, um, you know, s Southern sympathies, Walter can resonate with you. Uh, we would, uh, I, I grew up in New England, so I was a Yankee and he was a Southerner and yet somehow we still get along. And uh, so we're, gonna, we're, we're hoping hopefully at, at some point this week we can go visit a couple of uh, battle sites and maybe we'll reenact it together. But anyways, uh, I'm grateful that he is here. And so we're looking forward to this week. So I've asked you to go to Luke chapter 8 here this morning. This is a passage that likely you're very familiar with. We're going to look at several characters this morning that you in reading your Bible will recognize immediately. Uh, but as we work through this passage here at the very beginning of these uh, extended services, I trust that you may see yourself in this text. There's three different people or three different groups of people in this text that are going to come in contact with Jesus. Some for better, some for worse. And in the contacting of Jesus, their life may or may not be affected. And I want us, as we read this text and as we work through it and process through it, I'm going to actually ask you some questions and invite you to answer uh, from the floor. So maybe turn it into more of an answer uh, uh, back and forth uh, study here this morning. But I want you, as you read through this, to ask yourself this question. 
If I am represented in this text, who am I in this text? And what is my relationship to Jesus? This morning, I'm not primarily asking you if you're saved, though maybe that would be an applicable question, but I want to ask you this morning, when's the last time you came in contact with Jesus and what did he do for you? Because just because someone comes in contact with Christ does not mean they will be transformed. And it really is, in many ways, up to you. So look with me in Luke chapter 8. We're going to start reading in verse 40, and we're going to read uh, all the way to the end of the chapter. So here we've got about 17 verses. So it's a haul, so stick with me, but it's, it's narrative here as, as we are going to read an account here. Uh, so start with me in verse 40. The scripture says this, And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house, for he had one only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she lay a-dying. But as he went, the people thronged him, and a woman, having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately... Her issue of blood stanched. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not. Believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John and the father and the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her, but he said, Weep not. She is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again. And she arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. A familiar passage for all of us, likely. To give us context to what is happening, if you were to read the earlier part of Luke chapter 8, uh, Jesus has just met with the maniac of Gadara. If you're familiar with that, that interaction where he comes to the seaside, gets out of the boat, they're there by these tombs, and there's this crazed man who comes literally streaking down towards him, screaming and yelling. He's a man demon-possessed. And there, uh, as Jesus begins to interact with him, the man falls down and declaring, you're, you're the God and you're the you're the Christ and, and, and Jesus is standing before the maniac and he casts the demons out of the maniac. The demons go into the swine, the swine go down into the sea and the men of that region, the text tells us in, in previous verses, the men of that region who had tried over and over and over again to try to help this maniac, of course they never were able to, all they knew how to do was bind him. 
You've got problems, they would say, and so let's just tie you down. You've got problems, let's try to constrict you. You've got problems, let's just try to reduce the, uh, the damage here. But they didn't know how to heal him. And so finally, Jesus casting out the demon, the man is healed from the inside out. He's now sitting clothed in his right mind, pleading to go with Jesus. Let me go with you, let me go with you. And Jesus says, no, I, want, I have another mission for you. And the men in that region, their response is, Jesus, leave us. We don't want you here. It's a fascinating response, isn't it? They've tried everything to help this, this torn apart man. And when someone actually comes to heal him, their response is, leave our parts. We want nothing to do with you. Unfortunately, I do believe there are too many churches today, too many church people today who have tried their spiritual rituals to get someone healed and the only way that they can heal them is to try to get them to just uh, slow down their sinning. They don't know how to heal them and when Jesus comes up and does a nourishing life-giving work, those people don't know how to interact with Jesus because it's been a long time since they've seen him and so all they know to do is ask Jesus to leave. So that's exactly what he does. He leaves that region because they don't want him there. And he comes across the sea, and as we look in verse 40, where we took up reading, Jesus comes back across the sea, and there's a group of people that are waiting for him, not because they want him to leave, but because they want him to come because they know they have needs. So in this multitude, as we started reading in verse 40, it says that it came to pass when Jesus would return, the people gladly received him for they were all waiting for him. So again, there's a group of people that are waiting for Christ. They want to meet with Jesus. They want to see his miracles. And in that multitude are a multitude of needs. Now, who is the first person that we come in contact with in this text. So as we were reading, so you can uh, give it away, verses 41 and 42, and uh, I don't know if this is gonna throw the camera guy off. If I, is that okay if I come down here? You, I don't know if you'll be able to adjust that at all. Um, but in verses 41 and 42, who is the first person that comes in contact with Jesus? So I want, this is where I'm inviting you to holler from the, holler from the floor. Jairus, okay, very good. Now, so let's, I'm going to ask this question. Uh, let's, let's try to unpack this a little bit. So the first person, the, the whole multitude's there. Uh, they've all come to see Jesus, and Jairus is in the crowd, and, and the, the text uh, gives us his name. So what do we know about this man named Jairus? He's a ruler of the synagogue. Okay, what else do we know about him? He has a very sick daughter. How many, uh, how many sick children does he have? Because he has how many children? Right, one. He's a father of one, and his daughter is sick. So sick that she is dying. Okay. So let's unpack this a little bit. He's a ruler of the synagogue. What does that tell us about Jairus? He's a Jew. What is Jesus? Jew. What do the rulers of the synagogue think of Jesus? Yeah. He's ruining their religion thoroughly. He is a new preacher on the block, and everything he is preaching, they think, cuts cross-grain, uh, contrary to their theology. They don't realize he's not re uh, 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 resisting their theology. He's fulfilling their theology, but they can't reckon with that. 
And so as the leaders in the synagogue gather, they, they recognize that this, this young Jesus of Nazareth, this preacher that's coming around preaching, man, we don't like his message. It's, yeah, the masses are flocking to him because they, those needy people need something from him. But us who are the religious elite, we don't need him and we don't want him. And so their perspective is Jesus. We want nothing to do with Jesus. That's, that's the religious elite. That is the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders in the synagogue. That's their perspective. That's all the colleagues of, of Jairus. That's what they think. Except for this man, Jairus. Jairus, what's, what's, his, what's his need? We've already named it briefly, but what is his need? His daughter is dying, and it's his only daughter. And because that need is so great, because that need is pressing upon his soul with such weight, Jairus is willing to set aside his self-righteous religious cloaks because there's someone who might be able to help his family. I don't want to try to unpack, uh, open up old wounds if there is any in this room. But can you imagine putting yourself in his shoes? I grew up in a family of eight, and so there was a lot of kids in my family. We were talking to the Georges last night, uh, Mrs. George, one of 12, and that's an even bigger family. When you grow up in a big family, it almost feels like kids are expendable, right? Like there's, there's just so many of them that uh, if you, you miss one, you kind of forget about them. That's how you, when you go to church and realize you missed one in the bathroom, that's how those things happen, right? <laughs> but if, you've ever, if you were an only child or you had an only child, you know there's a, there's a level of ownership of that one child because they're your only one that your, your entire life is wrapped up around them. That's why well, those only children sometimes get spoiled, right? And for Jairus and Mrs. Jairus, this girl, how old's the girl? So how many children are they going to have? The, the text doesn't say explicitly, but if they've only had one and the girl is 12 years old, it would, it's likely to say, it's an educated guess to say, they're probably not going to have any more. She's their only one. They've poured their life into this girl. She's not going to carry on the family name, but she will carry on the family line. And so after maybe five years of marriage of trying and finally they're able to have a, a child and, and then five years go by and they can't have any more. And so they just pour themselves into this little one. They cherish her. They take her to the synagogue and they teach her and preparing her for womanhood. And mom pours into her and dad pours into her. And now she's 12. She's a young lady. She's preparing for her future. They're starting to think about marriage and then she gets sick. Maybe Mrs. Jairus is saying, "Hun, this isn't, this isn't looking good. We need to do something about it. Go to the physicians. Maybe he does. We don't know. But they have no solution. Finally, the death rattle is in her throat, and she's struggling to breathe. They know she doesn't have much time. And maybe Jairus is running to the doctor. We, we don't know. But somehow, with a daughter who's dying, Jairus is on the same street that Jesus is. And Jairus knows who Jesus is. He knows the stories of what Jesus has done. He's healed people. I'm not supposed to like him. I'm not supposed to need him. But I do. And so not fearing what his religious colleagues are going to think. To what level does Jairus reveal to Jesus his desperation? Does, does, he, does he take his servant with him and say, here, here's my business card, go take that to Jesus? Is that what he does? What does he do according to the text? He comes and falls before him. Now think about this. If, if he's a religious leader, 
He's wearing the garb of a leader of the synagogue. Everyone in that crowd, if they don't know his name, they know his standing. They know his societal position, right? And this leader of the synagogue, again, remember, this is, this is the kind of people that Nicodemus would go and talk with and they'd say, oh, Nicodemus, you're going you're gonna to pursue this Jesus? You're crazy. Like that's the kind of animosity there is towards Jesus. And this Jairus, because his need is so great, someone he loves is dying, his own heart is breaking. He runs before Jesus, pushing through the crowd and drops to his knees publicly before him, declaring, I need you. There are far too many people in suits and ties sitting in pews today across the nation who have deep, painful, pressing needs. But because we wear the suit and tie and because everyone knows that I'm a deacon or a deacon's wife or everyone knows that I've been in the church for 35 years or everyone knows you fill in the blank, we have been kept or we have kept ourselves from running to Jesus. Church family, I believe the number one reason in conservative churches today, and I'm conservative, but the number one reason in conservative churches today that we often don't get healed by Jesus is because we are too spiritual. And we are not willing to admit, I am broken and my family is broken and we need him. We are being at a conference a number of years ago and it was at my home church and so uh, I was I was involved in the, uh, the preparation for it, and I was playing in the orchestra pit. I, I play a brass instrument. I'm not very good at it, but they're low on brass players, and so I got to play in the orchestra. And I was sitting right back here, so uh, just, just past the line of the pulpit, and I was sitting in the back in, in the orchestra pit, and the, the preacher that was at a large conference, auditorium was packed, maybe uh, somewhere between 800 and 1,100 people, packed auditorium. The preaching that, that evening was it was powerful. It was on point. It was incredibly convicting. It wasn't one of those like preaching to the lost kind of sins, like those obvious sins, like, well, you know, everyone in here who's getting drunk on Friday nights, it wasn't one of those that we who go to church normally, we know it's a sin to get drunk on Friday night. We already know that one. No, he was dealing with a deep sin that every single believer, and I don't remember what the topic was. It might have been self-righteousness. I don't remember what it was, but it was, I mean, it sliced you, diced you, and you're sitting there. I remember sitting in the orchestra pit feeling incredibly convicted, and uh, I'm part of the, the music, so when, when the invitation has begun to play, uh, I'm involved in that, and so my eyes were open. At least that's the excuse I give for my eyes being open in the invitation. And I remember there being a, a pastor sitting right here in the front of the auditorium. He pastors one of the largest churches in America, a, a tall, stately man, a well-known speaker. If I named his name, a number of you would know him. He's one of those guys that when the invitation is given, he could have stood up and, and come to the front of the auditorium to help all the rank and file. But I remember when that invitation was given, that man was the first person to the altar. I remember God dealing with me and saying, Caleb, if you ever get so big for your spiritual britches that you're not willing to humble yourself before me, you're too spiritual. Friends, do you have a family problem? A family burden? Is there a brokenness in your family like in Jairus's? You would say, Father, it doesn't matter who knows. Father, it doesn't matter what my church thinks. Lord, I've hidden it long enough, and God, I'm willing to be public and be honest and say, God, it's, 
We're falling apart. We need you. Would you be willing to open up and find Christ? Certainly, you can find Jesus in private. That is, that is very, very true. But I'm afraid there have been too many times where because of fear of man and fear of what other broken people will think about my brokenness, we shrink back in the background. We don't boldly run to find Christ. Jesus said in speaking to the Pharisees, I said, I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. What he means by that is I'm not looking for people who don't need a physician. I'm looking for those people who know they're hurting and need me. And to the one who needs me, I can pour myself out on him. But to the man who doesn't need me or doesn't think he needs me, I can't help you. So that's what Jairus does. He runs to Jesus. And, and, and look at the end of verse uh, 42. So I'll read verse 42. So for, he, for he had one only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she lay a-dying. So he's poured out his need to the Lord. So he's told Jesus. He's fallen there. He's on his knees. Lord Jesus, I've got a daughter. She's one only daughter. I need you to help. And, and look at the last phrase of verse 42. The scripture says, But as he went, the people thronged him. If you were to read the... Um, Oh boy, I think it's Mark 5, if I remember correctly, or maybe it's either Mark 5 or Mark 7 would be the, the other gospel's accounting of the, of the, same, the same story. Uh, the text says something like, as Jesus was on his way to his house. So between Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, it makes it abundantly clear that when Jairus comes to Jesus, pours out his heart, humbles himself, uh, lays out his need before Jesus, Jesus heard Jairus' need, and then they made it very clear, all right, Jairus, Let's go. And as he went, so now they're on their way to Jairus' house because Jesus is going to heal the daughter. And so, uh, well, let me pause and ask this question. Could Jesus have healed Jairus' daughter on the spot? Yes. Do we have biblical, uh, um, biblical, and a, a biblical account that we can look back and say, yes, we know Jesus can do those miracles? Yeah, absolutely. Remember this, the servant, uh, the, the centurion and the servant, and Jesus was, yeah, at this very moment that your servant's being healed. Jesus absolutely could have done it. So why didn't Jesus just say, all right, Jairus, because of your faith, your daughter is healed immediately. Why didn't he? Why is it that they have to start heading toward his house and they won't get, the daughter won't get healed until they get to the house? Why? Well, I believe because many times the distance or the space of time between the asking and the receiving the space of time in our journey between the asking of the Lord, the hearing of our request, and the answer, that space of time, often the Lord is doing more in our heart. He's taking his work deeper in us if there is a space between the asking and the receiving. I'm not saying there always needs to be a space, but I'm saying if you've been praying for quite some time and the Lord has heard you but not yet answered, that journey that the Lord is taking you through is because he's wanting to do something deeper in your heart that he, than, than he could have if he had just answered immediately on the spot. Do not run from those moments. If you're familiar with the name Oswald Chambers, uh, he is, uh, his name would be on uh, the world's best-selling devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. Uh, he did not actually physically write that. His, his wife took transcripts of his messages and then compiled those into a number of different books. In fact, if you read a book that has Oswald Chambers' name on it, uh, you can mark it down that that was not him writing. It was his wife's compilations. He died at age 43. The rest of his wife's life was taking all his transcripted notes and putting them in book forms, and that was her ministry for the rest of her life, and, which I am very grateful for. I, I, uh, I love reading Oswald Chambers. 
Uh, but anyways, in, in, in uh, uh, one of his devotionals, Oswald Chambers wrote, and I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, uh, but he basically said, uh, the, the answer that we are asking the Lord for, we come to the Lord, Lord, I need an answer, and the answer is our, that's our end goal. Like, Lord, we want the daughter to be healed. That's our goal and why we came to you. But that is not the Lord's end goal. The Lord's end goal is the process he takes us through to get to that. He will give us the answer to the request because he's a good God and loves to lavish good gifts. But what he is looking for is the journey that he takes us through in purifying us and us knowing him and him knowing us. Let me just challenge you. If you're on a journey right now, maybe you've been praying for that grandson for 13 years and praying for that daughter for three years. You've got a son in your home right now that there's a burden or your spouse, your relationship right now maybe is on the rocks and you've been crying out to the Lord. He's working. He's heard you. God is always working behind the scenes on your behalf. So as they're on their way, Jesus has taken Jairus and, okay, Jairus, we're going to start heading towards your house. The scripture says, end of verse 42, but as he went, the people thronged him. And so now we're going to be introduced to the next person that Jesus comes in contact with uh, who has needs. So who is the next person named in scripture that has needs that Jesus comes in contact with? Right, so we don't know her name. The text doesn't say, okay, and her name was Tabitha. It doesn't say that. It just says she's a woman with an issue of blood. So let's unpack this. Uh, what can we learn about this woman? Or let me back up and ask this. What is her issue of blood? Do we know? <laughs> It's maybe a kind of a trick question. The text doesn't say exactly what the malady is, but likely if it's a running blood issue, if you were to read Levitical law, and, and some commentators uh, and Hebrew scholars will say it seems likely that this running blood issue has something to do with her reproductive system. What exactly it is, we don't know. But either way, if it is a running blood issue, according to Levitical law, what is she? Unclean. How long has she had this issue? Twelve years. The same length as the, as the age of the daughter. Keep this in mind. I mentioned this already. God is always working behind the scenes. Twelve years prior to this, God knew that his son was going to be on that Israelite street when a woman who had been struggling for twelve years and a girl twelve years old were both going to have their needs met and were going to contact Jesus on the same day in the same street. Do, do not think that a canceled flight or a disrupted schedule is the devil just trying to attack you. It just might be God is working on your behalf. Uh, I was telling Walter yesterday, um, I, last week I was at a meeting in Arkansas, and the way that all worked out, my, my firstborn, my son, came with me, and that was our first time to fly, just him and I to go to a meeting, and, and uh, he's, he's almost four, so he's still a young guy, so just like taking off in an airplane that just thrills him and it was a great trip we really had a wonderful trip uh we were supposed to leave i was supposed to get up yesterday morning at 4:30 and catch a flight out of fayetteville and when i got up i got a notification on my on my uh, uh phone that said your flight's been delayed and we've rerouted you well i had a very tight schedule because i was supposed to fly back to milwaukee drop gilbert off with my wife walk back through security step on another airplane and then fly to chicago and then fly to richmond and so i had i had like a two-hour window where i can't miss any flights which that's probably a dumb thing to schedule it that close because ever since 2020 flights are just haywire right 
Uh, and sure enough, woke up yesterday morning and the flight was all rearranged and, and I was going to miss my flight to here and, and I was going to cost me $600 to fly here and reroute. And then I'm thinking, oh Lord, what are you doing? And, and the Lord worked it all out and they put me on a different flight. Well, my, the one flight that they re- rearranged and readjusted me, uh, I kept getting notifications. I'm climbing into bed last night. I'm getting notifications. Your flight's still delayed. Your flight's still delayed. I would have had a terrible flight day yesterday, but the Lord rerouted it all and worked it out and I'm here. So I'm very grateful. And so keep in mind, the, the Lord's always working on your behalf. But anyways, okay, that, that was a rabbit trail. Uh, okay, so you, you've got, a, you've got a, a woman with a running blood issue for 12 years. She's unclean. Because if she is unclean, is she supposed to be in this crowd? Is she welcome in this crowd? Is she welcome at the market? Is she welcome at the synagogue? She's not welcome anywhere. She's supposed to be walking around crying out unclean. People do not want her around. She's labeled. She's defiled. We don't want you. We don't need you. Get away from us. And yet, because of her own personal need, to what extent did she try to fix her problem? Right. She knew she had a problem. She was willing to admit that. And she goes so far that she, she throws all of her cash at it. She sells her estate maybe and puts that towards it. She sells her stocks and her Bitcoin and she puts that towards it. She liquidates all her assets and puts that toward it. Okay, I'm trying to put it in 2023 language. She sells her guns and puts that into it or whatever. She's trying to do whatever it takes because she passionately wants to be healed. She's just run to the wrong physician. Keep in mind, men and women who have deep personal needs, many times it is not their, their lack of healing. It's not for lack of desire. It's for running to the wrong physician. Uh, I probably don't have to tell you this, but the statistics that are being shown today about the American church is staggering when it comes to hidden, secret, personal sin. The statistics tell us today that seven out of every ten men in churches on Sunday morning in America struggle with pornography, and three out of every ten women do. It's, it's not a guy-only issue. We know that now. Which, And they're not talking about just teenagers. They're saying from no hair to gray hair, all across the board. For some, it's not pornography. For some, it's actually acting out and committing adultery. For some, it is... Uh, getting drunk on the weekends. But our churches are, are filled today with hurting, broken people. And that's the ones Jesus said, yeah, that's who I'm tailor-made to help. So why is it that we in the church today find out that someone is struggling with a secret sin and we say, get away from us, you're unclean. Instead of saying, this church is not a show and tell, this church is a hospital, let us help them. Do you ever feel like you've been labeled unclean? Sometimes there's a couple that's gone through a divorce. You realize that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. God can actually take someone who has been divorced and still use them. And yet sometimes someone who has made some wrong choices and ends up in a divorce, or maybe they didn't feel like they made any wrong choices, they just got the short end of the stick, you might say, and and their spouse divorced them. God says, I know how to take ashes and turn them into beauty. I can change you. I can remake you. And I can use you. 
And yet some find themselves feeling like, oh, I lost my virginity. I must be defiled. I'm damaged goods. Jesus says, you're the kind of person I can help. This woman who's been hurting for 12 years, finally discovering the physicians will not help, but maybe Jesus can. Men struggling with pornography, more porn, more porn will not solve it. Struggling with pornography, the prostitute will not help. Ladies struggling with worry, more worry is not going to help. More reading the news, more uh, checking your stats and checking your stocks, it's not going to help. Husband worried about security in the future, uh, adjusting your finances to keep wrestling with that to see, to make, if I can, I gotta have security, it's not going to solve your problem. Uh, struggling with fear, run to YouTube, YouTube is not gonna solve your problem. Binge watching the television, it's not gonna solve your problem. Having a hobby, rebuilding a car to take my mind off of my troubles, those things can be helpful, but that's not the solution. We know this in name, but do you know it in reality? Where we say, Father, I've run out of money. I've run out of options. I've run out of chances, and I need you. Well, that's where this woman comes. The deep personal need, willing to be honest. She runs before Jesus. and Well, she, I should say that she runs into the crowd there around Jesus, maybe because of fear or superstition. I don't know. She does not want to go in front of Jesus. And so she thinks, if I can just come up behind him. And so what does she do? Physically, what does she do? Okay, physically, she comes up to him and she touches the border of his garment. That's all she does. And it's not because he was wearing some supercharged clothing. It's because she recognized, if I go to him. So coming up to him, she physically but touches the border of his garment because that represents Jesus, and that's who I'm going for. And at that moment, she's healed, and she knows it. Her body has been touched. Something inside of her, you know how it is, you go to the doctor, and you tell them, something doesn't feel right, and the doctor's like, well, you don't know because you're not a doctor, and you're saying, no, I know my body, something inside, right? And she knows, though, something changed inside of me, and, and so she starts to back away, and Jesus immediately recognizes, and, and so the, proud, the crowd's all around him, they're bumping and jostling with him, and all of a sudden, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Now, do you see the humor of this? And Peter gets it, and he's a little bit maybe sarcastic, and he's like, Lord, everybody's touching you. Why would you even say that? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That was a different touch. I sensed that power just flowed from me. Turning and looking, there he sees the woman, and the woman is not hid. And in fear, she comes trembling before him. Maybe she's wondering, will he rebuke me? Will he scold me? And I believe Jesus wants her and the entire crowd to know, young lady, you did not steal a blessing. I gave it willingly. And he says to her publicly and openly, uh, look with me at, at verse 48. Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. Do you hear the tenderness of Christ? If I understand correctly, this is the only place in the New Testament where it's recorded for him to refer to a, a lady that's likely older than he is and call her daughter. That's that com compassion flowing from the father, the great I am, who before Abraham was, I am. And he says, daughter, you don't need to be fearful. You're whole. She's whole. I want everybody to know she's whole. Jesus cares about your healing. He cares about the body's healing. 
just this last week, the meeting we were in, uh, a man came to me after the, I think the second night and said, I, I feel like I need to be honest with the church. So well, I'm not the pastor. You need, to, you need to go and talk with the pastor and clear that with him. And, and he did. And on, the la on our last night, he stood up before the congregation and, and began to tell his story. And I'm telling you, it was heavy. Uh, began to tell of immorality and abusing of, of women and nearly losing his marriage until God finally broke him and dealt with him and healed him. The church had never heard this before. It's the first time they're hearing about this man in their, auditorium, in, their, in their congregation, a member. And he stood up with tears and began to share his story. And it was heavy, but it was liberating as people began to realize if God can heal him, maybe he can heal me too. And so Jesus, and I'm, I'm running out of time, so I need, I need to be careful about my time here, but Jesus heals the woman. And, and I'm not going to be able to finish all of this, but I want you to consider this. Jairus has been with Jesus. They're on their way. The crowd presses in. The woman touches him. He turns around, has this interaction with him, and the whole time they're talking, what do you think Jairus is doing? Oh, come on. Yeah. We don't have time for this. Like, I asked you first, <laughs> you know. And in that time, a servant comes from his home. Can, can you imagine him there like that? God, Jesus, she's almost dead, please. And then someone touches and he turns and says, servant. And the servant says, she's dead. Trouble not the master. He missed it, Jairus. You're too late. Don't bother with Jesus. You ever been there? It seems like there's a voice inside of you saying, you prayed for that for five years, and he didn't answer. The expiration date has come and gone. Don't bother with Jesus any longer. I think probably every one of us have been there. And maybe Jairus could start wrestling with God, and likely on, on the brink of unbelief of, I, I humbled myself. And I asked, and you didn't deliver. And why? And, and as he's at that point, Jesus recognizing that he's in the throes of wrestling, he's just been told his daughter is physically, literally, she's gone, she's dead. And Jesus there turns to him and says, what's the matter with you? You should have more faith. Is that what Jesus does? But sometimes that's how we think he acts to us. In that moment when Jesus knows he's struggling on the verge of unbelief, Jesus turns to him and says this in verse 50, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. Keep in mind, church family, your father's not sitting in heaven going, see how much faith you have. I'm going to yank the carpet out from under you and see if you still stick with me. That's not what he's doing. He's a pursuing God who is looking to take your hand and draw you. And even when you're failing and struggling and stumbling and in unbelief, he's there still saying, no, 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 trust me, buddy. You can do it, my child. Stick with me. Have, have comfort. Be of good comfort. She shall be made whole. Jesus is more interested in growing your faith than you are in trying to keeping your faith. Because he's a pursuing God. And at that point, and you know, Maybe Jairus has thought to himself, why did she get an answer and I didn't? Have you ever been there? 
Lord, why did that couple and us, we both prayed for a child, and they got pregnant and we didn't. Why? It's in those moments that we can be tempted to be bitter at other people in church because the Lord chose to bless them in their custom-made way, and he didn't quite do it for me. Keep this in mind. Your father does not work the same way with every person. He has a tailor-made, custom, limited edition for you. It may be different than how he works with somebody else, but he is still good, and he still has a plan for her healing. He's not forgotten, Jairus. She needed to be healed immediately. She needed it for her own soul's sake. And Jairus, he's doing a deeper work, and she's going to be healed. So they head towards the house. Maybe Jairus is going with Jesus because Jesus still seems to think something can happen, so he's going to stick with Jesus, but I'm sure he's wrestling at this moment. They get to the house, and the entire, everybody in the house is saying, it's over, it's done. They're wailing, and they're crying, and Jesus says, yeah, we send them all out. We don't need them here. And they laugh him to scorn when he says, oh, she's not dead, she's sleeping. They laugh him to scorn. Now, we assume, we, we often read that passage, we say, oh, look, all those mourners, they were living in unbelief. What would you do if you were a mourner? They're just looking at reality. And Jesus says, I see past your current reality, and I see victory at the other side. Send all of them out. Talitha Kumi made a rise. She sits up, and mom and dad probably run over there and cling to her and, and hold her and hug her. They thought they'd never be able to do this again. And they, their confidence in God because of the time between the asking and the receiving, the anguish between it, their confidence in God has just gone through the roof. Because we thought nothing. Expiration date has come and gone and Jesus still delivered. Are you asking for something that you feel like is it's too late? God has never seen a deadline that he can't meet. Now, i got to be done. I mentioned to you there's three groups of people that had needs. We only looked at two. So who's the third? The multitude. They all had needs. And many of them were touching Jesus. But only one person who touched walked away healed. Why? Because the woman who touched, expecting, received the healing. Wouldn't it be something if an old man on that street that day was telling the story to his grandchildren. Hey, grandkids, remember that Jesus of Nazareth? I met him. You did, Grandpa? I did. I was on a street one day, and he was there. And actually, I bumped his shoulder. You did? Yeah. And I tried to get a little bit of his garment. I was right there. We were nudging. Wow, what did he do for you, Grandpa? I touched him. Yeah, but didn't, didn't, something, didn't something happen? No, I just, I just touched him. I mean, Grandpa, you, you were there with Jesus and nothing happened? Friends, I've been in too many meetings. You have been in meetings where you sat around Jesus. He was present to heal. We were just there for the freak show. May I challenge you this week? Would you make it a point to come to the services, but not to hear me preach, but to come to the services and say, Father, would you touch me? Because I want to touch you with expectation. Father, this is a needed message for myself, Lord. And I ask that this week you would 
guide and direct each one of these messages and services, Lord, that you would touch our needs, that you would meet us this week. Lord, I don't know where the needs are. I know I've got some in my own heart. So, Lord, I'm just asking that you would, uh, your spirit would just do its work and we'll yield these services to you, trusting you. In your name, amen. All right, you are dismissed.